As you're taking your seat, if you'll take a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 18. Isaiah chapter 18. We'll read the whole chapter. I'll give you just a moment to turn there as we continue to walk through God's Word, the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. I still hear a page or two turning, but hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. Thus ends the reading of God's word, grass withers, Flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Before we pray, just a brief note. I mentioned something about pages turning, hearing that sound. What a beautiful sound that is. With that, let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we need your word. We need your light. We need your truth. So would you speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeking God's will is a good thing, right? But what if you keep searching after God has already declared his will? What if God's will is already clear? What if he has already spoken? At what point does advice seeking become an attempt to find someone who tells you what you want to hear? Now, to be clear, all this is much harder for us today because God has Spoken In these last days, God has spoken by His Son in His Word. And He does not speak new, specific words for every situation we encounter. We're not kings. Isaiah is not knocking on our door to tell us the latest word of the Lord. But if we take a trip back to Isaiah's day, I think we can find similar principles that help us now. Who is God? How does he act in world affairs? How should I approach the world with all its fears and threats? How will this story end? And that reminds me of an R.C. Sproul line. I'm paraphrasing, to be fair. If your view of eschatology, the, the end times or the last things, if your view of eschatology terrifies you, then you might be doing something wrong, he once said. Now, why mention that? Because, well, this passage starts 2,800 years ago, but its final verse gives us a view, a glimpse, 
of the very end of history, I believe. And in between, there's plenty to encourage us about who our God is. Where life says, walk by sight. God says, walk by faith. Because he has declared his faithfulness. And so the first thing we see this morning is this, the Lord's laughter. The Lord's laughter at the world's backup plans. What are the world's backup plans? Well, it's what Alec Moitier calls collective strength. Don't trust God to deliver. Trust your neighbors, their armies, their sources of security. And frankly, God laughs at the notion that those plans are more secure than his. Why does he laugh? Why is it so bad that the nations are forming alliances with one another, as we've seen all throughout Isaiah? Because God already told his people at this time to not do that. He had already spoken. You will see that throughout this chapter, but I think we also need to revisit Isaiah 7. Back in Isaiah 7, two nations want to invade Israel because they offered to form an alliance, but King Ahaz sought out another alliance with Assyria. Israel's supposed savior, also their worst enemy, their future slave master. In a word, King Ahaz is scared. So Isaiah comes with his son, Shear Jashub, whose name means a remnant will return. And Isaiah the prophet says this to the king, to the leader of God's people, be careful, he says in verse 4, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at their fierce anger. Then in verse 7, he says, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Verse 8, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. God's word to his people was trust me. Don't turn elsewhere. But you see the world back then and now is obsessed with security, tangible security. I can't see God. So he's harder to trust. But I can see a contract to put nuclear subs in Australia, which is close to China. Not that that's bad, to be clear. I can see an alliance with ancient Assyria or Egypt or whomever. Collective strength, it's the way of the world. Forming an alliance, it's what you do, whether you're a mighty nation or a college football conference. It's the background of this chapter forming alliances to find their strength, their security in that. With that, let's dive in. Verses 1 and 2. A land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. We'll leave off there and handle the rest later. But Cush, Cush is modern-day Ethiopia and Sudan and probably more. And at this time, back then... Cush and Egypt had been combined into one dominant power. So I'll follow Isaiah's lead for the next few chapters and use Cush, Ethiopia, Egypt somewhat interchangeably. Cush was the land of whirring wings. Might be a reference to the tsetse fly or its sound, which stood for busyness and restlessness, which ultimately lashed out in war as it played out for this nation. And then verse 2 says, they are sending ambassadors by boat. That happened most likely in 715 BC when Cush, Egypt were combined. They sent ambassadors all throughout Palestine, Israel, and the surrounding area. 
asking them if they wanted to join their alliance against Assyria, the big bad guy everybody feared. How does God feel about these military alliances for God's people at this time? He's already made his position clear. No, they must trust God and God alone to deliver them. To be clear, this is not saying we shouldn't have armies and ambassadors and allies as part of our modern governments. There's a lot of uniforms in the room as well as people who wear uniforms during the week. So let me say that again. This is not saying we shouldn't have armies and ambassadors and allies as part of our modern governments. Israel had an army. They probably had something like a secretary of war and a secretary of state. But God believed at this time their trust in war and diplomacy and alliances with other nations, ungodly nations we might add, was turning them away from trusting God. It was causing them to doubt God's clear word to them. Trust me. And so God's next action in which he sends these ambassadors back out with a different message. All of it, I think, is reminiscent of Psalm 2. The nation's rage and the people's plot in vain, plotting against God's anointed because they ultimately don't want to trust God, don't want to trust his king. But does all that, the nation's raging, does it make God nervous? No. Psalm 2, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The same thing must have happened when Israel heard this latest offer of a military alliance. And keep in mind, if the scholars have their dates right, all this is taking place about 20 years after northern Israel or Ephraim had a failed alliance with Syria. Do not trust the alliance you can see. Trust the God you cannot see who has declared his trustworthiness to you. That's what undergirds this entire chapter, which is primarily a word for Israel about the other nations around them. The first thing we see is the Lord's laughter at the world's backup plans. They're alternatives to him. Secondly, we see this, the Lord's aloofness. I'm pretty sure that's a word. Aloof is a word. I'm pretty sure aloofness is a word too. The Lord's aloofness when their other gods don't save. Aloofness when the other gods don't save. Verses two to four. Before we get to that, his aloofness, let's understand what he says to these ambassadors who are courting an alliance. In verse 2, they're coming in these boats of papyrus on the waters. In the middle of the verse, it says, Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. <clears throat> First, do you see the shift halfway through the verse? When you see that word, go. No longer are we describing things anymore. Now God is dictating. He is commanding. Go, you swift messengers. It's as if the messengers from Cush have arrived in Jerusalem, and now God is sending them back. To where? To a people, it says. Feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. They're going back to Cush or Egypt, which are both cut in two by a mighty river known as the Nile. And after God sends the messengers back, what is his message to Cush and the world? Verse 3, all you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, 
When a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. He's in effect telling them to wait. Wait for this signal. When this happens, then do something. Wait for the call to arms. You see, when trumpets and banners or signals were raised, then it was time for war. And God is essentially saying, wait until then. Something is going to happen then. What is it? Verse 4, for thus the Lord God said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. I will quietly look. What's going to happen? At first, nothing, right? Seemingly nothing is happening. God is going to wait and watch. Now, yes, something happens in verses 5 and 6, but don't jump ahead to that yet. For now, God says he is going to sit in the shadows while all these other nations are plotting and planning for war. Why might that be? It's like he wants everyone to see the pointlessness of the idols, the other gods, the other sources of security that they trust. It has been said sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is for God to let our idols fulfill us. See, if your idol makes you happy for a little while, then your need, your need for God, it is, it's whitewashed, it's placated, it's tidied over like a, with a snack. This kind of snack like cotton candy that doesn't fill, that doesn't satisfy for any long period of time. But it's like God is waiting until the idols disappoint them. But there's another nuance here. You notice verse 4 used some weird phrases. You don't have to raise your hand if you didn't understand all of it. But it says he's quietly looking like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. What's going on here? When the sun shines, will there be heat? Oh, yes. You know, if you live in Colorado Springs, it's 25 degrees below freezing and sunny. Is that enough heat to melt the snow in your driveway? Yes, it is. When the sun shines, there is heat. But can you see it? Or is it clear heat? Can't see it. And also, when it's hot, is there dew moving around, moving around the plants occasionally, attaching itself to the plants, you know? Yes, it's there, but you don't always see it. You sometimes take it for granted. You don't notice it. That's what's going on. Alec Moitier says, as naturally and inevitably, as there is heat with light and dew in harvest, so the Lord is present, unobserved, remaining quiet. God is there, but you don't notice him necessarily. And, and what do you know about heat and dew when it comes to harvest. Because you know there's a harvest coming in verses 5 and 6. We'll get there in a moment. Heat and dew ripen plants. It gets them ready for the harvest. The nuance here is that yes God is aloof. He is not noticed. He is off to the side. But he is also sovereign. Ruling. Directing. Bringing about the harvest. In these verses God he displays what you might call an aloof sovereignty, a quiet control, a divine meekness. Meekness, not weakness. See, remember, meekness is a good thing. 
And meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Strength that doesn't need to flex its muscles every moment of the day, every time someone looks at you. It's a God who can intervene in world affairs whenever he wants, but sometimes chooses not to. All of it reminds me of something God says to his people in Judges chapter 10. Judges, fascinating book, a book about Israel's repeated spiritual failure and forgetfulness and unfaithfulness. They kept chasing after other gods. And when they did, God would allow the enemy to overtake them for a while. And and after 10 chapters of this cycle, God decides at one point not to come to their immediate rescue. Israel cried out. Maybe it was repentance. Maybe it was just sheer pain and agony. And God said in verse 11 of Judges chapter 10, didn't I save you from all those other nations? And then verses 13 and 14, he's a little upset that they've gone after these other gods. He says, pardon me, verse 13 of Judges 10, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of distress. God chose in Judges 10 to stay on the sidelines so that Israel could understand the emptiness of their other gods. And in Isaiah 18, he's doing something similar. He tells everyone that he is going to wait on the sidelines while various armies make alliances and draw up battle plans, and it will look like he's doing nothing. He will look aloof, but he will still be sovereign. He will look weak to some, but it will actually be meekness, strength under control. A question to you this morning. Do you serve a weak God? Or a meek God? Do you sometimes think he's weak? Because he doesn't deliver you or others as quickly as you want. Can you trust a meek God? A strong God who holds his power in reserve for the moments he chooses for the reasons of his decision? I used this quote a few months ago. It's from John Piper. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. While we whirl around with plans, sometimes ignoring the clear commands of God, God is still there, still watching, waiting, directing, yet he's doing it quietly. It's a test in some ways. Do you assume God's silence means inactivity, weakness? Do you forget about God when he's silent? Or do you trust that he is still there, ruling, reigning, directing traffic at 10,000 intersections of life? The Lord laughs when we doubt his strength, and the Lord stands aloof, off to the side, when we forget him and seek other plans. And what else do we see here? Well, we also see, thirdly, the Lord's last-minute salvation. The Lord's last-minute salvation in verses 5 and 6 There's a harvest in verses 5 and 6, but who's harvesting? Well, we'll get to that. First, remember verse 4, what we just talked about. God is standing by, looking on quietly, like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. It means he is there, even if you don't notice him. But what else do we say about the heat and the dew? 
they ripen the crops to be harvested, like the grapes that are mentioned in verse 5. So God is standing by quietly, but he's not merely standing by. God is still upholding all things by the power of his word. He is not on vacation. He is just waiting for the opportune moment. Verses 5 and 6. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. <clears throat> As everyone is preparing for a harvest, God swoops in at the last minute and harvests them, leaving them all behind as food for the vultures and scavengers. What a, what a picture. You might be wondering, who was, who was preparing the harvest in verses 5 and 6? Was it Assyria? Was it Cush who was recruiting people in their alliance against Assyria? I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're supposed to know. My best guess is that Cush is the one who is plotting and planning for harvest. But do you remember the other point, the geographic point that we made last week? Of course you do, because you all love geography. Good, you're awake. Isaiah 13 through 24. The oracles against foreign nations. God is telling Israel that all these nations around her, that they are, they are doomed, all of them. Chapter 14, Philistia in the west, they're wailing. Chapters 15 and 16, Moab to the east, they're wasted. Chapters 17, Damascus, Syria, up in the north, they're brought low. Chapters 18 through 20, Cush, Egypt in the south, cut off, lopped off. If you think collective strength, assembling lots of allies will save you, you are wrong. What will you do if every ally Every backup plan eventually withers away. See, Isaiah's point is not to predict every aspect of history ahead of time, though when he does that, he is accurate. But his point overall is to show you the theological truth underneath the history. One day when mighty nations, most likely Cush, is mentioned in chapter 18 here, when mighty nations are on the verge of victory, God will swoop in with a last-minute salvation and His people will be saved. Now, how does that promise apply today? Frankly, how does it apply if you're a Christian living in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan? Not that any of us are that, but we have watched and been concerned and then some as we've seen that situation play out. How does it apply for that circumstance. This does not mean that God will never allow physical harm to come to you or one of his people. But it does mean that God can, God often does swoop in to save his people, both in the affairs of world history, like the Sennacherib story of Isaiah 37, and in the mundane details of life. It is emblematic of the way God deals with his people through history, especially at the very end of history. In other words, it may look at times like the church is on the ropes, the people of God are beaten, they're battered, the referee is about to stop the fight. 
or worse, the referee is not about to stop the fight. The church's fate is going to be tragic. And that is when we remember that God is sovereign over time and history, over peoples and nations. God sent his son into the world, quote, when the fullness of time had come. Galatians 4.4. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners or at just the right time, uses both of those phrases in Romans 5. And if he did that, if he is a at just the right time kind of God, then God can send him once again when the church needs him most, when individuals need him most. And even if his people are caught in the crossfires of a fallen life on a fallen earth, Christ will lose none of those whom the Father has given to him. God will bring all of his people to their final home. Our good shepherd never loses a sheep. He never leaves a man behind. And the point in all this is not for us to stop planning, to stop being prudent about our plans, to stop carefully weighing the various risks of life. Life is a series of calculated risks. The point is to not give up, knowing that God can deliver at any time, even at the last minute. He can switch from aloof to lashing out in an instant. And if you doubt that God can or will deliver. It can be hard to wait on him, to obey when circumstances are bleak, to, oh, to obey when, when he's aloof. He's not saving you at that moment. But when we realize that he can do this, it makes it easier to wait, easier to remember that his mercies are made new every morning, even if they aren't always apparent right in front of you. So after the Lord's laughter, after his aloofness, after his last-minute salvation, finally we see this, the Lord's lute. The Lord's lute to his feet, your tribute bring, as we sang earlier. You see this in verse 7. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. Do you remember how this chapter started? Verses 1 and 2, Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea and vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to where? To a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and in conquering whose land the rivers divide. In the first scene, you see the ambassadors coming from this nation, tall and smooth, the people feared near and far. You see them coming from there and then being sent back by God himself. That tall and smooth reference, if it doesn't make sense, Ethiopians were proverbially tall Egyptians supposedly shaved their bodies every third day, a nation tall and smooth. That's what's pictured there. So the first scene, you see these ambassadors coming, saying, join our alliance or else, or else the big bad guy and their mighty army will conquer you. Well, scene four, the final scene, conquered peoples coming from that same nation to bring tribute, to bring gifts 
to the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies. They're bringing loot, treasure, valuable gifts to show honor to the king of kings. When did this happen? Well, who's to say it has already happened? It is like God gave Isaiah a a flash forward with no time stamp in verse 7. It'll happen, it says, at that time, a vague future reference. So this foreboding image that starts the chapter of foreign diplomats coming to town, it is replaced with this triumphant image of people bringing tribute to Mount Zion, located in Jerusalem, Israel's capital, and God's throne. It's another glimpse of the Prince of Peace, the branch, Emmanuel, Another glimpse of his future home. The government will be upon his shoulder, Isaiah 9. The nations shall flow into it, Isaiah 2. Of him the nations shall inquire and his resting place shall be glorious, Isaiah 11. These are all bite-sized previews of the future home for all of God's people. Those from Israel, those from elsewhere. Which is good news for us, most of whom are Gentile-born. Bite-sized previews leading to a fuller picture in Isaiah 60 through 62, leading to an even fuller picture in Revelation. And all of them are designed to make us hungry for heaven. All of them are designed to give us a holy dissatisfaction with the things of this world. Designed to let us know that God is trustworthy. His promises will come about. Oh yes, God's people will still have trouble in this world, but we need to take heart. God has overcome the world. And God has begun drawing all nations to himself, as verse 7 talks about. He has begun to draw Cush to himself. We see that on the pages of Scripture. Acts chapter 8, years after this. The chapter begins with Saul ravaging the church, arresting and imprisoning Christians. But then you see a shift. The gospel goes to Samaria. And just as soon as that has happened, it begins to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 8.26, the Holy Spirit sends Philip on a detour to the south. Acts 8.27, and he, Philip, arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, someone from Cush. A eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah, of all things. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And then in verse 32, it tells you what passage this Ethiopian is reading. The passage of scripture he was reading was this, like a sheep He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And the end of it all is that this Ethiopian, this resident of what we used to call Cush, believed. And the kingdom of God set up its first outpost in Cush, or Ethiopia. The first of many from Cush who would give his soul, his life, his all to the kingdom of God who would bring his tribute, his costly treasure, and lay it at the feet of Jesus. The point of Isaiah 18 is the point, same point that every chapter of the book of Revelation makes. Jesus wins, and everyone will worship him 
in the end, willingly or unwillingly. So if you truly want to be on the right side of history, then trust Jesus. Then follow his word, even when it gets hard or unpopular. That was true in the 8th century BC. It's still true today. The world wants us to walk by sight, trusting whatever salvation our eyes see first. God wants us to walk by faith because he has declared his faithfulness. Don't look for more than what God has promised. Realize how much he has promised. Daily bread, daily forgiveness of sin, daily protection from temptation and evil that would try to draw us away from him. He has promised to be all that we need him to be. He has promised to be enough for as long as we need him to be enough. As long as it takes until his kingdom comes once and for all in all its fullness, in all its glory. His will, his plan are clear. And his character, his trustworthiness is clear. So look to him. And stop looking for anything more. Let us pray. God, you are good and what you do is good. We pray that you would give us eyes to see your goodness, your faithfulness, your provision for all that we need and more. Not the least of which is your son, our savior, who came to this earth, who obeyed in every way that we failed and who suffered for all the ways that we have failed so that we might taste your goodness, so that we might taste eternal fellowship with you. God, be with us, bless us, do it all for Jesus' sake. We ask it in his name. Amen.